Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. That the first section of the book is chapters 1 through 9. Pretty much each chapter is a separate topic that the author was dealing with. And then we moved in from chapter 10 to 22, about 22 and a half. And that's where you get those little one-verse statements, two-verse statements that all sort of stand alone and almost seems like Solomon has ADD or something. He's all over the place in those ideas there. But that's those little words of wisdom that he has for us. And then there was that short little section that contained parts of 22, chapter 23, and then a little bit of chapter 24, uh, another section with like three, four verse Proverbs. Uh, But here now we come to this fourth section of the book. And as I said earlier, it begins in 25. It runs through chapter 29. And one thing you'll notice about it, in verse 1 it says, These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, copied. So these are Proverbs of Solomon that he presented, but he did not include initially in this book that he was putting together for his son to understand. Actually, this group of men called the men of Hezekiah years later said, you know what, we've been looking, we've been discovering other things Solomon put. These are good things. People need to know these words of wisdom. And so they were assembled and included by the men of Hezekiah, written by Solomon, assembled and included by Hezekiah, uh, the men of Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah lived 250 years after Solomon. And so these were words of wisdom that were out there that these men decided, you know what, people need to hear these things as well. People need to know these things as well. And verse 1 sort of forms the title, if you will, of this fourth section of the book. We might call it the Proverbs of of Solomon assembled by the men of Hezekiah. Now chapters 1 through 24 are those Proverbs of Solomon. There's about 400 different Proverbs of Solomon in those first 24 chapters. The men of Hezekiah in these next four or five chapters, they're going to assemble another 140 so Proverbs. Now that's about 550 Proverbs. That's not even a sixth of what Solomon put together. We read this in the book of 1 Kings. It said, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all the other men. And then it went to list some of those men. And it says, And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. So over 3,000 or 3,000 Proverbs of Solomon, we only have about 600 or so that are listed in this book that we call the book of Proverbs. So there's far more that wasn't included that was included. But here you have this group of men called the men of Hezekiah who decide they're going to add an additional five chapters to this book here. And they're going to give us some additional words of wisdom. And certainly the Lord has put his hand of blessing on these words. And so we'll read through them. Starting in verse 2, it says, Now the glory, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but it is the glory of kings to search things out. Comparing God and kings or leaders. Now Moses wrote to us in the book of Deuteronomy, he said to us that the secret things belong to the Lord. We learn in the book of Isaiah that God's ways are higher than our ways and that even his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And Paul the Apostle would say this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Here's the testimony of Scripture. I'm going to, this is the cliff note version. The testimony of Scripture is that there is a God and that we are not him. In fact, that we don't even come close to being him. That he is far above us, even in his thinking and certainly in his actions. Now, certainly the word of God has revealed to us, Peter teaches us this, all things that pertain to life and godliness. We know that. The word of God reveals those things to us. But none of us can say that we completely and totally know all things about all things. Can we? Can anybody say that? The Lord can. I I set you up to prove you wrong. Sorry. But none of us can say that, but the Lord can do that. And only of the Lord can that be said. Now that further speaks to the glory of God. The fact that he alone knows all things about all things, and he is altogether separate from humanity. And so you look there again at verse 2. It says, it's the glory of God to conceal things. The fact that he knows things that nobody else can know further adds, if you will, to his glory. So God does not need to search things out, as the verse says to us, because he already knows everything. And that, again, further speaks to his glory. Who does need to search things out are kings. Kings don't know all things, and all mere mortals, us, each of us here, we don't know things as well. And so a wise king or a wise mortal is going to dig into things. They're going to be the type of people at the end that they'll say, you know what, that was a good king because they searched these things out carefully. So again, it says it's the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings to search things out. And so rather than winging it or just making judgments hastily or saying, well, I'm the king, I'll do what I like and people are going to have to get used to it, what a wise and a glorious king will do, they will take the time with, with material so that they can come to a greater understanding of the material so that they can grow in wisdom. And they'll keep themselves apprised at what's going on within their kingdom. They'll read up on and study the best practices of neighboring kingdoms and things like that so they can learn and they can prayerfully digest that material and apply it to them if they need to. They're going to keep growing because they don't know and they know that they don't know and so they search things out so that they will learn and that they will grow. And it's the glory of kings to search these things out. Now, none of us here, I suspect, are ever going to become a king or a queen or anything like that. Now, there's some outside chance. We saw that with the lady in California or whatever who married the prince or something. There's some outside chance you're going to get close to royalty. But more than likely, none of us are going to get there. But I do think that this principle still rings true for us, just as regular people here. And so if a king is known to be a glorious king by searching things out they don't know, well, then you too can be known as a glorious individual. And so you should look to grow. You should mine for wisdom. You should refuse to just sort of settle for your status quo of who you are, but rather just keep looking to grow, keep looking to develop, keep looking to move forward. That's what these wise kings do. That's what you and I should do as well. Make sense? Fantastic. Moving on, verse 3 says, As the heavens for height... And the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. I have a feeling I'm going to bother some of you with what I'm about to say. So get ready. Uh, as As Solomon continues this theme of the inner workings of a king, he declares that in the same way that someone can't truly measure the heights of heaven 
or the depths of the earth, we cannot truly understand the reason why kings do so often what they do. So often what they do is a mystery. Now, many of us can understand that. I don't understand what they're doing. Okay, let, let me go back and let me explain here. The height of the heavens seems to be limitless, and the depths of the earth seem to be unsearchable. Even so, Solomon will say here, the heart of a king can never really be known. I read a book a number of years ago called The President's Club. I thought it was quite interesting. If you like history, you might enjoy this particular book. And the, the point of the book, it was written by uh, Nancy Gibbs and Michael Duffy, if you care. They considered the very exclusive club of former U.S. presidents that were alive at any one time. And a couple of instances, we had six former U.S. presidents alive. There was a couple of incidents where there was no former uh, president alive, and the person sort of was on their own there in the White House. And what the book did was it looked at the unique relationship former presidents share with one another, and the reason I'm bringing it up this morning, the relationship former presidents shared with the current person that was in the White House. And one of those former presidents said this. He said, no matter the politics, you know and understand the weight of the decisions the other guy has to make, and you respect that. I forget who said it, but the fact that he used the word guy, I suspect it was George Bush. You know, he sent, tended to speak that way here. And the point that the book will go on to make, or at least one that I picked up there, was only another former world leader can truly understand the weight of a statement, like Truman used to say, the buck stops here. And because they can understand that, each former president that they interviewed for this particular book, they would articulate that they could sympathize with their successors and give their successors space to make the decisions that they needed to make. Because the rest of society truly has no idea because they don't sit behind that particular desk. This is where I feel like some of you might say, oh, I know what's going on, and, my, and I feel like I may offend you, and just deal with it, okay? If you don't like it, that's okay, you know, and just say, I disagree with him. I think we think we know. The pundits on TV are convinced that they know, and everyone gets all over social media to tell everybody else all that they know. If I may say, the reality is you and I are never really going to know why certain decisions are made by kings and presidents and people in authority any more than we'll know how high the heavens are and how deep the earth is. And so now to make it a little more practical here, whether we're talking about our parents and the decisions that they make, that's more for young people, or our boss and the decision that he or she makes, or the governor or the president or the king and the decisions that they make, those of us on the outside of the know may from time to time want to pull back and say, you know what, maybe I don't have all the info. Maybe I don't really know why they have done all that they have done. And perhaps rather than criticizing and second-guessing every step that person in authority ma makes, maybe we should pull back and do as the scripture says and pray for those that are in authority, that they might have the wisdom to make good decisions with the information that they do have, again, that you and I do not have. Because again, as the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of a king is unsearchable. Okay? Let the Lord search your heart out with that. Verse 4 says, Take away the dross from the silver, and the smith has material for a vessel. Take away the wicked from the presence of the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. A number of week back, weeks back when Will was sharing, Pastor Will was sharing about fellowship, he talked about the process of refining silver in a crucible where the silver would be heated up to the point 
that it would melt, it would cause the liquefied silver to sink to the bottom while the impurities from that silver would rise to the top. That's called the dross. And then that dross would be scooped out, eventually the silver would be cooled down, and it would be a much, much more purified silver than before it had gone into the fire. Well, Solomon now, he makes a comparison here that the dross in the proverb, it symbolizes wicked counselors. You can see it there in verse 5 in a king's court. And so when dross is removed from silver, the silver will then be stronger and more pure. Even so, when the wicked counselors are removed from the presence of a king, then that kingdom, the king and the kingdom, will be stronger and more pure. Or as Solomon says there, it will be established in righteousness. Now again, none of us are likely going to rise to the place of leading our own kingdom. But I don't think that negates the value of the wisdom that a verse like this is trying to communicate. Because if a wise king establishes his kingdom by carefully guarding whom he allows to influence him, well then I think, wouldn't it, wouldn't it benefit you and I as well by being careful with who we allow to influence us? So if a wise king improves his kingdom by being careful who he allows to enter in and influence him, wouldn't you and I be better off by being careful who we allow to influence us? I think the answer is yes. And so I think we as believers, seeking to be wise believers, we need to be careful where we receive our counsel, who we allow to influence us. Because if those people are given to worldliness, soon we will see our decisions in our lives, our little kingdoms, if you will, are given over to worldliness. If those people are given to wickedness, soon we're going to see the decisions that we're making are going to be wicked as well. And so the wise believer then is careful with the things that they read, careful with the things that they watch, careful with the things that they click on. And what the wise believer does is make sure that everything that they're taking in, they sift it through the pages of the Word of God to see how those ideas line up with the Word of God. Again, as Solomon says, I'll rephrase it, but take away the wicked and your throne will be established in righteousness. Be careful who you give yourself to influence you. Verses 6 and 7 say, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put to the lower in the presence of a noble. Anybody had that happen to them? None of you? It's kind of embarrassing, as you can imagine, where you take the best seat of honor and people are like, what are you doing up here? You should be sitting down there or whatever. You know what? You should stand against the wall, whatever it may be. Now, Jesus said a very similar parable in Luke chapter 14. And Jesus was trying to teach there in Luke 14 a lesson about not exalting oneself. That's a lesson we all need to learn, isn't it? Because oftentimes we, that's just our go-to. We want to exalt ourselves. I hope everybody noticed me. I hope everyone is thinking about me and my particular needs. And Jesus concluded that parable. It's Luke 14. He said this, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Because it is far better to be invited up to the place of honor than to take that place and be publicly demoted to a place of lesser honor or even dishonor. And so if you go into that setting thinking you deserve the best seat and then take the best seat, you're setting yourself up for public embarrassment. Rather, it's better to let people come to you and say to you, what are you doing sitting way down here? Come on, you deserve to be in a better spot and to bring you up. Now that sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? 
It's pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy. And yet so many of us, we can't keep ourselves from taking the best seat. We walk into the room and we're looking for the best seat. And what, which one of those am I going to get in? We try to arrive there even a little bit early so that we can take the best seat. Or maybe because we're humble, the second best seat. You know, I don't want to go overboard or something. And so many times we ignore this instruction or an instruction like this. Even though it makes perfect sense, I wonder why. And I think sometimes it's because we fear, well, what if I take the worst seat, hoping someone will advance me to the best seat, and nobody comes and advances me to the best seat? Then I'm stuck down here in the lowly seat. And rue to that sort of thinking is, I'm better than this, and I deserve better than this. My wife used to say a lot. She stopped saying it. You deserve hell. Is what, and I, I, probably because I've grown a lot during those times here. But that's, the, that's what I really deserve is hell. Not the very best seat in here. And pride, excuse me, pride and love of recognition, which leads a person to put themselves forward in the presence of those that are truly exalted. Kings are truly exalted. And yet somehow I think that I should be exalted higher than that king. That's pride. And it's the love of recognition. And it's almost certain to backfire on an individual. And so I would say this. If you possess that sort of pride, you need to do your very best to mask that in public. And then when you go home, you need to pray about that to the Lord. Lord, this pride, you got to root it out of me. you got to take it out of me. So not that I have to fake it when I go to these particular places. So that when you're in private, the Lord takes it out from you so that you don't have to go to one of these events, sit in the best seat, and then publicly have it taken out of you. Does that make sense? Where I'm going with that? I explained it somewhat clearly. I hope I did. And so I think it's that simple. It's good counsel, and yet oftentimes we ignore it, but it will potentially save us a whole lot of embarrassment. Allow the Lord to root it out in private. Now we continue. It says, what your eyes have seen, do not hastily bring into the court. For what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Argue your case with your neighbor himself and do not reveal another secret lest he who hears you bring shame upon you and your ill repute have no end. Some people, they want to escalate every disagreement to the highest level at the first sign of discord. And so someone slights them and they break off all interaction with that person. Someone gives them a smart retort and they immediately, you want to take it outside? And we're going to fight over this because I, I was a little sarcastic. And so they want to go out and they want to fight it out or duke it out. The neighbor encroaches in some way across their property line. And immediately it's time to call the lawyers. Some people, they just want to escalate every disagreement to the highest level. What Solomon says here is this. He says, before going to court, stop and think about all that a court case is going to involve. Because court cases... They cost money. Court cases involve a huge time commitment. Court cases potentially can go against you. And Solomon says, think about all these things first before hastily jumping into a court case. Now, there is a place for the court systems. There's a place for a mediator. There's a place for a judge to intervene when disputes cannot be resolved any other way. But that being said, the Bible does not look favorably upon the litigious spirit or this desire to rush to the court of law to settle every grievance. And so a few weeks back, as Brian was teaching us, we see that the scripture gives us the proper way to handle our grievances with another. And Matthew 18 is very clear. That is, go to the other person, 
present your grievance to them, and you try and work it out or work out the issue there. Again, Matthew 18, 15 says, if your brother sins against you, go. Tell him his fault between you and him alone, and if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Not to hastily bring it to court, as Solomon is pointing out here in verse 8. Our first course of action, rather than going to court, rather than breaking off a relationship, rather than taking it outside and we'll settle it like men, is to try to end the matter privately and amicably. And Solomon gives us two reasons that are presented here why that's in your best interest to do it. Number one reason, this is separate, the bonus reason. Number one is because Jesus told you to do it. All right, so that should be good enough. But here's two reasons why it's in your best interest to settle it between you and him as opposed, or her as opposed to going to the courts. Number one is lest the case end up going against you. Because of course you think you're right, but what's the judge going to think? You may be totally off base and have no idea. And so you brought this thing, you escalated it to this place, and now it goes against you. And so we see that there. What will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? What about when they share things from their perspective? What happens then? And then the second one there we see in verse 10, it says, lest you begin, or I'm telling you, lest you begin to develop this reputation of being a problem with others. So you look at verse 10, it says, lest he who hears you bring shame upon you and your ill repute have no end. And so imagine if a person went to court eight times, 10 times, and each time they were right. They had an issue and they brought it to court and they were found to be right. Don't you think people are going to start to think of that, that person as, you know, they always have a problem with everybody, even though they were right. But they begin to develop this reputation as always being in dispute with other people. And Solomon is addressing that, lest he, he who hears you bring shame upon you and your ill repute have no end. And so again, you begin to develop this reputation of having problems with others. If you have a problem with a neighbor, with a person, another individual, go and talk to that person quietly personally and privately. And go talk to that person because you'll save yourself, if you think about the court idea, a lot of legal fees. You'll protect yourself from the risk of things going unexpectedly against you. And you'll guard yourself from this possibility of developing this reputation of just being a problem and always having problems with others. And I think it's just good practical advice. Good practical advice that the men of Hezekiah felt that each of us should know. So file that away. Verse 11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Now, apples of gold in a setting of silver may not mean anything to you and I. Like, oh, that's nice, I guess, or what have you. But it was actually considered ornamentally to be quite attractive in the days of Solomon. And so Solomon writes this proverb and he compares a word, a word fitly spoken to apples of gold in a setting of silver. And similarly, he goes on and he compares the one who brings that word that is fitly spoken to a gold ring or to some ornament of gold. Now the gold ring, the ornament of gold, they're lovely, they're attractive, they're expensive even. The, the setting of silver is expensive, all those things. But apples of gold in the setting of silver are even more expensive and lovely and attractive. And so Solomon is trying to think of the most attractive, expensive, lovely, uh, appealing thing that he can as he puts it out there. And he says that a word fitly spoken is like those things. And he compares it to those things. He specifically 
the specific uh, word fitly spoken, notice in verse 12, as he develops a little further, is a word of reproof. Now, reproof is correction. Reproof is a little bit of instruction. Reproof essentially says to someone, you were off here, and I'm going to give you the information so you can get yourself back on track. That's not always fun to hear, is it? Come on, friends. No, nobody wants to be corrected. I'd rather you just kind of ignore me and let me figure it out for myself. But there are times where we need to be corrected. And Solomon now, he is commending the right word being spoken at the right time. Even when that word needs to be a word of reproof, as verse 12 says. And many times, you know, the wrong word can be spoken at the wrong time, right? That's bad. You don't want to do that. Sometimes the right word can be spoken at the wrong time. That's also bad. It's not as bad, but it's still in the bad category. But what the Lord would have for each of us is to speak the right word at the right time. That's the meaning. That's the idea of a word that is fitly spoken. And so that's why it is so important that we prayerfully approach. We've been talking about this in other parts of the book of Proverbs, that we carefully approach the words we allow to come out of our mouths so that each one of those words are words that are fitly spoken. A few weeks ago, I was reading through the book of Job during my just quiet devotion time. And as I'm reading through the book of Job, you've probably read the book, you may be familiar. Job has all of these friends, these counselors that come to help him understand why he's going through the things that he is going through. And those friends, they come, they share with him all sorts of words and messages. And 95% of the time, I don't know for sure, but the vast majority of the time, everything they said was theologically right on the mark. Theologically sound statements of truth. But they were not statements that Job needed to hear at that particular time. And they were not necessarily true in Job's situation, a point that is later pointed out by the Lord himself as he rebukes those particular individuals. And what it reveals then is that these guys were not prayed up about the words that they were speaking to Job, that they just sat down and they waited an appropriate amount of time, but then they just began to speak. And so those words were not necessarily what the Lord would have them to speak. It came to mind, so it must be the Lord. That's not true. A lot of people think that. That if it comes into my mind, it must be God. No, it's usually your flesh. It's usually the world influential systems, uh, systems that influence us. And so everything has to be sifted through the word of God with prayer to see if, Lord, would you have me to say this? You have to pray about it. And you have to seek the Lord for his wisdom and his leading because failure to do so will lead to a word unfitly spoken. And such words are damaging and they are hurtful to the listener. And so then the reprover of verse 12 has the obligation to prayerfully seek the Lord for his wisdom before just jumping in and starting to share a word. And the listener needs to prayerfully receive any word that might be spoken to them. Again, reproofs, corrections, admonishments, words of instruction designed to improve, they're not always easy to hear. And our natural tendency is to pull away from them or to defend ourselves, well, you don't understand why I did, or I'm having a hard day, whatever it may be, or to excuse our attitude or our behavior. But the wise individual doesn't do that. Rather than pulling away from those things, men and women of wisdom receive a reproof, and they seek to see if the Lord is in that reproof. They, they simply just ask, Lord, what do you have for me in this? 
And even if 5% of what is said is true, they take that 5% and they apply it to their lives. In a few chapters, Solomon will say, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And just because someone shares something with us that is hard for us to hear, it doesn't mean that they're try- they hate us. It doesn't mean even that they're trying to hurt us because sometimes truth, the truth that we need to hear, sometimes it hurts. And sometimes it's painful for us to hear. And our friend, they can go on pretending that nothing needs to be said or at the right time they can share a wise word of reproof that will be for our benefit. And the person that has a heart that wants to know the Lord, obey the Lord, walk in the Lord's ways, learn from him, they're going to receive the word from the wise reprover and they will do so gladly. As Solomon says, they'll have a listening ear. He says in verse 12, And they're going to look then at that wise reprover as if they were a gold ring or as if they were an ornament of gold. And again, what is that? Someone that is beautiful, someone that is valuable, somebody that is worthy of their attention. And so here's how the Lord works. Working together, we have the wise reprover that speaks the right word at the the right time. And we have the wise listener that receives that word and it makes appropriate application. And working through both of them, The Lord does a beautiful work in each of our lives. And so be wise with the words you speak and be wise with the words that you receive. Amen? Verse 13, it says, Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. Now, in in ancient times in Israel, a lot of times, I, I don't know how you do it. I used to think Israel was like pretty much just desert or something. And it was like 100 degrees and, and things like that all throughout Israel. It's not like that at all. There's ranges and down in the south, it's very hot and deserty. And up in the north, it's green and lush and it's like springtime and things like that. And you go all the way fur up to the Golan Heights and you got mountains with snow on them that people go skiing on. So Israel's not too different from you know the United States that has just sort of the range of environments there. And so There's snow in Israel, not just randomly, like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Um, It happens in Israel. And so what they used to do in Solomon's day, and and probably into even our day, if you're old, like like Scott, like in the early 1900s or so, they probably did it. They would gather, sorry, brother, they would gather up snow, they would put it away that it would stay that, and then gradually they would take it out and they would make their drinks cool and comfortable, much like the way that we would use ice and things like that. And so Solomon is referencing that essentially. He says, like the cold snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his master. And the point then is this, like a nice cold drink after a long hot day of harvesting, the way that satisfies, the way it refreshes an individual, Solomon would say, so too does a faithful messenger to those who send him. And so the idea is this, for the boss to be able to entrust the task to someone and know that it will get faithfully done is really all many bosses are looking for. I want to be able to give you a responsibility and know that you're going to take care of that particular responsibility. They're looking for someone they can trust and someone they can entrust responsibilities to, confident that those jobs are going to be faithfully carried out. And so when that happens, the boss is refreshed by that like a nice cold drink after a hot day working out in the sun. And so if you're the boss, you can testify that that's the type of person ultimately you're looking for. And if you work for the boss, as many of us do, then that's the type of person that you should strive to be. Someone that others can trust, someone that will faithfully carry out 
your particular responsibilities. You'll be refreshing for those that you're serving. Verse 14 says, Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift that he does not give. Now, many of us would be disappointed if the clouds brought rain. Many of us would. It would ruin our outside plans. We were going to have a picnic and things like that. But in a dry and hot and sometimes even desert climate, the possibility of rain would be very welcome. And the perceived promise of rain, when the clouds start rolling in, the sky sort of gets all dark, and then it passes over and the rain doesn't come, that would become a letdown. You understand? Can you see that particular picture there? On three different occasions in my life, I worked outside jobs. And it meant that if the rain would come, I'd get to go home early. And so I worked on a farm, I worked as a lifeguard, and I worked in masonry construction. And if the rain would come, I'd get to go home early. Now, of course, I like to earn money and things like that. That's why I was working those particular jobs. But there's nothing like having an unexpected afternoon off where all of a sudden you're home at 2. And you're like, this is awesome. You know, I love it. And I can't do it every day, but this is a great day. So you can imagine my disappointment in those particular jobs when the strong wind and the dark clouds and all those things would roll in, and I'm just looking. I'm going to be home in a half hour, and I'm planning my afternoon, what I'm going to be doing at the house, and things like that. And then all of a sudden, it just passes over, and we're staying there till 6 or whatever it may be. And Solomon says, that's what the person that promises some big fancy gift is like that never follows through. Again, he says, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. It's a letdown. Now, some people, they do that. They promise some big fancy gift because they want people to think better of them. It's like, wow, did you hear what Jimmy promised or whatever? And they don't know if Jimmy ended up giving it or not. And so they think highly of Jimmy. They forget, however, when they fail to follow through that people are going to think even less of them for not not, uh, following through on the promise that they gave. Some people are guilted into doing this, promising some big fancy gift or speaking more highly of themselves than perhaps they should. I can do this and I can accomplish that and I'm your guy and all these things. And some are guilted into doing that, knowing they have no ability to ever follow through. Solomon tells us here that it is far better not to commit and then surprise people later on than to promise and not fulfill that particular promise. Now, there's an interesting note about this verse that I think we should uh, consider. This phrase, some versions word it, waterless clouds. This phrase is referenced in the book of Jude. In verse 12 of the book of Jude, there's only one chapter in the book, it reads this way. It says, these are hidden reefs, blemishes is the idea, like pockmarked rockets, uh, rocks. It says, these are hidden reefs at your love feast." As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. A lot of adjectives to describe that particular person. One of them comes from this proverb where it says waterless clouds. Now, the these in verse 12, the these that he is speaking of are those, if you look back to verse 4, it's this long section. If you look back to verse 4, are those people that have crept in unnoticed. Verse 4 also says those that have perverted the grace of God. Also then in verse 4, it's those that deny 
our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And what he is talking about, Jude, is talking about our false teachers. And so it's interesting that Jude, in speaking about false teachers, will compare them to the waterless clouds of Proverbs chapter 25. And the connection then that he is making, even though he doesn't really dig into it, the connection that he is making is that these are teachers of the glorious word of God. And yet they're tainting the word of God with their false teaching. So that the word of God which should go forth and bring life is instead doing nothing of the sort. So think of the anticipation. Hopefully you anticipate when you come here to receive the word of God, hopefully you anticipate you're going to hear the voice of the Lord. He's going to speak to an area of your life. And even if it's nothing transformational or whatever, it'll be something you can file away and build your life upon because you believe that the word of God is literally the word of God that has been preserved for us and given to us. And so think of the anticipation of coming in, ready to sit under the word of God as it's going to go forth and instead getting a bunch of lies. Instead of getting a bunch of human wisdom, instead of getting a bunch of ideas or me talking through this word as if, well, some people think this, but that was a long time ago, and all that shenanigans and silliness. Think about it. What a letdown. I came to hear the voice of the Lord, and I heard the voice of some man or some earthly wisdom. Foolishness. It's like waterless clouds. It's like expecting to get off at two in the afternoon and having to spend the rest of my day there. Why did I even bother coming here today if I'm not going to hear the word of God go forth? Talk about a letdown. It is a very high calling to teach the word of God. I hope everyone that teaches the word of God in some way believes that with all their heart. If you're a Sunday school teacher, a youth group teacher, if you're sharing the word with a friend and explaining to them what the scripture says, it is a very high calling to teach the word of God. And the scripture makes it very clear that those that teach the word of God will receive a stricter judgment. I know there are times I say things here that don't make people comfortable. I'm going to answer for God. And I don't really care if you feel comfortable when I get to that place. I want to make sure he said, look, you were faithful. Sometimes your stories were a little dumb, but you were faithful. (laughs) And you did what you were supposed to do. God desires that the word of God will go forth faithfully so that it can accomplish that which he intends it to accomplish. Again, as we read, or we haven't read this, this is Isaiah. It says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Verse 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it to do. And it's our responsibility, all of us, as followers of Jesus Christ, you've been entrusted with the words of life. And you have the Holy Spirit to help you take these and share them with another person. Our job, as we learned in verse 13 of the proverb today, is to faithfully bring forth that message and then allow God to do what God is going to do with it. And yet so often we try and outsmart the Lord, I think. Maybe I'm speaking more to myself and my experiences. But so often we try to outsmart the Lord. And you know, I have to make this more palatable. It is the 21st century. People are different now. I can't share those particular things. I have to water them down a little bit here. No, you are called to be faithful with it. You don't need to twist it. You don't need to modify it. You don't need to make it more palatable for others. You learn what it says, and then you communicate what it says. And you allow the Lord do what he is going to do with it. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's alive, isn't it? 
And as we sit under it and we allow him to minister to our hearts, he uses it to accomplish his purposes. And that is really sweet and cool, I think. Amen? I'm done. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.